0: Genesis chapter 14. In the days of Amph- Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Ketolomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, um, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersher, king of Gomorrah, Shinab king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Z- Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they have served Kedar Leomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedar Leomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Raphaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavah, Kirathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En that is, Kadesh, they defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Keterleomer, the, the king of Elam, Tidal king of Goim, Amrithel king of Shinar, and Arioch king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and all the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fell, or fled. Some of them fell into them, the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. And then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew was, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite brother of Escol and of Aner these were allies of Abram when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive he led forth his trained men born in this house 318 of them and went in pursuit as far as Dan and he divided his forces against them by night he and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah north of Damascus then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kidder and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, the valley of Sheba, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be, Abraham, be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Solomon, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take the thread, take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eschol, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Almighty God, as we look at this passage of Scripture, we see names and places that are foreign to us. Lord, we see battles. We see we see kings. We see priests. Lord, we see concepts that... that that at first glance appeared to be distant from us and, and seemed to have very little in the way of application to us. But Lord, this as part of the whole counsel of your word has very real and very direct and very important application for us. Well, Lord, as we too face a battle, not like the battle that, that, that Abram faced in, against physical forces, but a much more dangerous, eternal and spiritual battle. And so, Lord, as your people who are called by your name, we pray that you would help us to see the battle for what it is. Lord, that you would help us to see and that you would help us to flee to you for the victory that can only be achieved in you. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen. Well, last week we saw... Abram back in the promised land after his disastrous foray into Egypt where he had in an act of cowardice and faithlessness put his wife's purity in danger in order to save his own skin from Pharaoh. Yet God had protected Abram and Sarai by afflicting Pharaoh and his household with great plagues. Pharaoh gave Abram many riches but nonetheless Abram was shamed by being banished from Egypt. And so, in chapter 13, back in the Promised Land, Abram went back to between Bethel and Ai, where he had first made an altar, and there he called on the name of the Lord, demonstrating full repentance, going back to where he had first stepped off the path. And he further demonstrated repentance. When, when conflict arose between, between his herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot over the, the grazing land for their flocks and herds. And rather than demanding his rights and, and rather than, than, than asserting his authority there over Lot, he suggested that the two of them separate, deferring to Lot. And in faith, allowing Lot to choose which piece of land that he wanted the promised land, or the, the apparently more fertile Jordan Valley. And Abraham there was demonstrating faith in the faithfulness of God. He, he sees with the eyes of faith and doesn't feel that he, he needs to grab what, what seems to be more fruitful because he knows that God has, has promised him a bountiful seed in the promised land. But Lot, in contrast to Abram, selfishly and foolishly chose the Jordan Valley. Lot, Lot pitched his tent, we're told, towards Sodom, whose inhabitants were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And so, chapter 14 continues this contrast between Abram and Lot in what is the second of, of three Abram Lot stories. But as the, the contrast continues, there are more characters who are now brought into the picture. And, and their behavior and Abram's response to them further reveals the, the conflict between the seed of promise and the seed of rejection. As the chapter begins, war breaks out. This is the first time in the Bible that military conflict is mentioned. It's the first Middle Eastern conflict in a region that, that has seen more war- warfare probably than anywhere else on earth. It, that continues to this day. And even at this moment, there is, is war brewing in that region. But behind this battle, this battle that, 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 that Abram is brought into, there is a more important spiritual battle. The battle in Abram's heart. This passage, Genesis 14 is is really one of the the few passages in the the Toledot of of Terah, the narrative that describes Abram in which the Lord does not speak directly, but as we'll see, the Lord is is certainly present, strengthening Abram and blessing Abram, giving him victory over his enemies and victory over temptation. That's really the, the central message of Genesis 14. It applies to us as well. God gives his people victory over their enemies, and over temptation. So in this, in this chapter, there's, there's three main scenes, three scenes in this narrative. In verses 1 to 12, Sodom is defeated, and Lot is captured. In verses 13 to 16, Abram rescues Lot. And in verses 17 to 24, two kings visit Abram. So first of all, so- Sodom is defeated, and Lot is captured. In verses 1 to 12, as the chapter begins, we're, we're told that, that an, an eastern alliance of, of four kings led by Kederleomer, king of Elam, make more with five vassal kings of the Jordan Valley because they had rebelled by refusing to pay tribute. For, for 12 years, these, these, cities, these five cities of the Jordan Valley had been forced to pay tribute to Kederleomer. And they rebelled in the 13th year. And so in the 14th year, Ketaliomer forms an army and comes against them. He marches against them. The Eastern Alliance included Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Ketaliomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim. And, and none of these kings, though they can't be identified uh, apart from the biblical record, we can tell uh, from, from the names of uh, and his allies, that this is an international conflict. That this is a, a multinational group that, that Keteliomer has, has gathered together to fight against the, the cities of, of the Jordan Valley. You might recognize uh, the, the Elam, the name Elam, where Keteliomer is from. It's the name of one of Shem's sons. And so it's the name of, of also, this, it's the, we know that um, it's part of, of ancient Persia, of, of modern Iran, Shinar probably sounds similar to you. the The city of, of Babylon was on the was in Shinar. Shinar. So, so, on the one side, these are these are the eastern these eastern kings who are marching all the way to the Promised Land to make war. And so, when we have the, these other side, these the, this this um, consortium of of five kings of the of the Jordan Valley. Again, there's, there's no record of them in, uh, apart from what we find here in the Bible. Bera, king of Sodom. Birsha, king of Gomorrah. Shinab, king of Adma. Shemeber, king of Zeboim. And the king of Bela, that is Zoar. It's interesting uh, and appropriately that the, the king of Sodom's name, Bera, means in evil. His name means in evil. How's that, parents, rename you your, your child In evil. The king of of Gomorrah was named Birsha. Not much better. It means in wickedness. So we're getting a sense of of, of the picture of of what these these men are like and what they represent. They were were likely small cities with relatively small armies. We project outward to to Genesis um, 18 and 19 we're going to see that of these five rebel cities, only one, Zohar, will escape annihilation at the hand of God in Genesis 19. But even before that happens, they'll suffer. We see here these, these... we've been talking about about how the, the seed of the, of the woman, the seed of promise is, is at war with the seed of Satan, with the seed of, of rejection of promise. But, but in the seed of, of rejection of promise, the, the seed of the serpent, they're at war with each other as well. They're at war with each other as well. And sometimes their conflict, or sometimes the, the people of God get embroiled into the, these, these worldly conflicts. So Kedil, Kedilomer Omer. Um, forms this coalition to crush the rebellion of these cities of the Jordan Valley. And then with precise geographical detail, we see their, armor, their armies s- sweeping. Uh, from the first they first came eastward and they're sweeping southward uh, on what is known as the King's Highway, this, the same route that is traveled by the Israelites when they left Kadesh to go to Moab. This army is a formidable force. They they cut through all opposition as they advance towards Sodom. No one can stand before them, not even the the Rephaim, the Zuzim, and the Emim, who who were were giants, the scriptures tell us. Notably, this, this coalition defeated the armies of the Amorites and the Amalekites, who will later become enemies of Israel. This picture is of a very powerful army. And in verse 8, we see that the five kings of the Jordan Valley coming out to, to meet this invading army in the valley of Sidim in the southern part of what is now, was now the Dead Sea. And Keterliomer and his allies d- defeat these kings that are assembled against them, routing them and, and scattering their armies. And some, were were told, fall into the bitumen pits, but the rest fell into the hill country. Sodom and Gomorrah are plundered. Lot, Abram's nephew, who was at this point now dwelling in Sodom, was looted and taken captive. Now, Lot's deterioration from, from pitching, his tent in, to, pitching his tent towards Sodom in chapter 13 to, to, to dwelling in Sodom in, in chapter 14 seems to have taken place quite quickly. He's, he's clearly allied, allied himself with, with a wicked people and he suffers. For it. Lot lost a lot by, by choosing the cities of the, of the Jordan Valley, and he will lose a lot more, and he will fall a lot further before his part in the Genesis narrative is over. Again, we see Lot as, as presented, Lot is presented in, as a contrast to Abram. Notice in, the, in this narrative that, that none of Lot's words or actions are recorded here. He's simply presented as a helpless captive who needs to be liberated by the decisive action of Abram. As we're going to see, it's it's really the Lord who wins the victory. Lot selfishly chose himself over his uncle Abram. He chose possessions, but he lost them all. But, But Abram, on the other hand, acts selflessly, risking his life to save Lot. And then in the process is offered even greater possessions. Kenneth Matthews describes Lot as the, the passive, impotent figure compared to the courageous champion Abram. And he says Lot was the is the incompetent is so also incompetent as a leader of a household who fails to maintain his possessions compared to Abram, who devised a successful plan to reclaim them. Friends, if you pitch your tent towards Sodom, it won't take very long before you're living there either. If you flirt with the world, soon enough you will find yourself married to the world. We all live in Sodom. We we can't help that. We're, We're going to live in Sodom until the return of Christ. Or Christ comes to take us home. But I wonder, are you like Lot, pitching your tent towards Sodom? Are you going with the world's flow, away from from what is godly? Are you seeking the world's benefits? Are you playing with the world's toys? Or are you like Abram, making a stand against the world? Making a decisive stand against the world? Going going with the flow and and going with the world is is often subtle as a result of of a series of, of seemingly small choices. But standing with God against the world is not subtle. It's not subtle. It is a bold commitment to seek God and to obey Him no matter what the cost. No matter what the cost. And the, the cost, though, there's a, a temporary cost, often a, a temporary cost, and even often a, a painful cost to, to, to serving God, because it, we know it's temporary, because we know that the things of, of this life are, are transient, that they're passing away, we, we can have confidence that by choosing God we are always choosing rightly. We're always making the right choice. Spoiler alert. Lot loses, Abram wins. So, next we see in in verses 13 to 16 that Abram rescues Lot. So, here the scene cuts to to Abram, who is is living in Hebron by the oaks of Mamre, right where he was at the end of chapter 13. Notice here that he is described as, as Abram the Hebrew. This is the first time that the word is used in Scripture, and it's the only time that that Abram is referred directly to, directly as Abram the Hebrew. Remember that the the name Hebrew probably comes from from Eber, the son of Shem, the son of Noah. In Scripture, Hebrew is is most often an ethnic designation, and that's the case here. Abram the Hebrew is a foreigner in the land. He's a he is still a stranger in the promised land. He's he is being presented as being distinct from his, his Amorite neighbors, Mamre, Eshkol, and Aner, with whom he was allied. With whom he was allied. Now, Most English translations don't bear this out, but, but Abram was in a covenant relationship with these men. Abram was in a covenant relationship with them. And one of the escapees from from the, the battle comes and, and tells Abram what has transpired and as soon as Abram has, has heard about about his nephew's capture he he musters a force of three hundred and eighty one trained men from his own household this is so your, your picture needs to broaden of, of, of how wealthy Abram was three hundred and eighty one trained men is this is a, this is, a, a, this is a, a large family group these, these were men who were trained for battle and and although some would would question say well it doesn't really fit with the rest of what we read uh, about about Abram we, we trust the scriptures that, that he, they were men who were trained for battle were trained for battle and so so Abram musters these men and and his his Amorite allies joined forces with him remember that the battle was, was theirs too we, we read that had had, had had killed many uh, had killed many Amorites. And so, so this is their battle too. So, the, so, so together they, they pursued Ketaliomer's army uh, as far as Dan, which is at the foot of, of Mount Hermon. Th- this, is, this is a full 200 kilometers. And they traveled it all on foot. And using a, a tactic is similar to what we read that Gideon uses in Judges chapter 7, Abram divides his forces and launches a surprise attack at night, attacking the, attacking Kedilomer's camp from, from three, at least three different sides. And we read about what happens. He, 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 he won a decisive victory. They, they routed them and pursued them all the way to, to Hobna, north of Damascus, an, another hundred kilometers or so to the north. And in so doing, Abram rescued all the captives, including Lot and all the plunder. And Alan Ross here describes Abram as a man of faith and courage, using the help that God had given him and using wisdom in the confrontation, enjoying the victory over the forces that threatened his, this land and its peaceful anticipation of the divine promise. And so here we see, we see Abram con- contrasted not just with Lot, but also contrasted with himself we see a contrast between, between the, the Abram of, of chapter 14 and the Abram of chapter 12. The difference of, of Abram here in the promised land versus Abram in Egypt. Remember, having, having left the promised land for Egypt, he was fearful that Pharaoh would kill him and take his beautiful wife. And so he told his wife Sarai to lie, saying that she was his sister in hopes that it would go well for him and that Pharaoh wouldn't kill him. Chapter 12, 13. And Sarai was taken into Pharaoh's harem. And then then, at that, at that time, his, his wife was now gone from him, and, and the hopes of fulfilling the, the promise of the seed was now seemingly gone from him. And what's Abram's response? He's passive. He's, he's impotent, standing by and doing nothing. There he was paralyzed by fear and now he acts in faith. There he, he behaved as a coward and now he is a conqueror. Abram repented. His heart changed as, as was, was revealed in his actions. He didn't just go back to where he'd gotten off the path by going back to the promised land. He, he worshiped God and he acted on his faith. He rescued his nephew who was in need. I wonder, as you sit here this morning, have you repented? Are you walking in repentance? Have, have you gone back to where you stepped off the path? Repentance is a, is a change of heart that leads to a change in behavior. What, is, what has changed in your life? How are your actions opposite of what they were prior to your coming to faith? How how are they opposite of of sins that you have struggled with in your Christian walk? Friends, we're we're all in a battle. You probably won't be called to take up arms and, and fight a physical enemy, but you are called to fight. You're called to fight against your own sinful flesh. And you're also called on a rescue mission. Think of Fanny Crosby's hymn, Rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from sin and the grave, weep o'er the erring one, lift up the fallen, tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. So here in this passage, um, Abram wins. And and if you're on the right side, you're going to win as well. Well, Here in verses 17 to 24, we find that there are two kings who who visit Abram after his victory. So here we have this this great victory against Kedeliomer. And Abram is now going to face an even more dangerous battle. As he's heading south, he reaches the the valley of, of Sheva, apparently just outside of Jerusalem. And two kings come out to meet him. The first is the king of Sodom. Remember that his his name means in evil. Remember how how the the, the men of of Sodom are described in Genesis 13, 13 as as very evil, as as greatly wicked against God. And so the king of Sodom represents that. He represents that, that wickedness. And he comes out empty-handed. But next we find Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and he brought bread and wine for Abram and his weary troops. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with the name Melchizedek. We we read about him earlier as Vince read the call to worship for us from Psalm 110. You can can read about him extensively in in Hebrews chapter 5 to 7. Who is this mysterious Melchizedek? Well, Time is not going to to, uh, allow us a a detailed description of of this enigmatic figure that that would really take an excursus of those passages. But but suffice it to to say that that Abram, from those passages, is presented as a type of Christ. He's a a figure who serves as a metaphor pointing towards Christ. He, He resembled Christ. You could see from this passage that that his name is is Melchizedek, which which means king of righteousness. He is said to be the king of Salem, the the king of Shalom, the king of peace. And Salem almost certainly refers to Jerusalem, which you need to understand was at this time a a pagan city, a Jebusite city. David was the first Israelite king to sit on the throne of Melchizedek. Christ is the last. Look at how Melchizedek is described. He was the the priest of God Most High, the priest of El Elyon. This is the the first time that the word priest is used in the scriptures. And, And here he is ruling as a priest king in this pagan city. With, with no visible relationship to the line of promise and, and none at all to the yet-to-be-established Levitical priesthood. But somehow in this, this pagan city, Melchizedek served the one true God. Now, now this presents all kinds of questions, questions that, that we don't have time to deal with here. If you, if you want to talk about that more, you've got to come on Wednesday to our Bible study. We'll talk a lot more about it then. But, but Melchizedek was a true believer. Melchizedek was Abram's brother in the faith. And though Melchizedek was was a priest, the the bread and the wine that he he speaks of here are are not allegorical to the Lord's Supper because the New Testament does not pick up on that detail. They're simply refreshments. These men were, were hungry and thirsty after the battle. And so Melchizedek comes and serves them. But refreshments aren't all that he brings. Look at verses 19 to 20. And he blessed him. Melchizedek blessed Abram. and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So Melchizedek blesses Abram. Melchizedek blesses God. Melchizedek is a priest of God most high, and he blesses Abram by God most high. Now for Abram the significance of the name El Elyon was was the sovereign lordship of his God over creation and over the nations. God is the universal creator of all things, sovereign over all nations. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. He owns everything. He owns everything. This benediction runs horizontally, but it also runs vertically. Melchizedek then pronounces blessing on God most high for Abram's victory. Well, what does it mean to to bless God? Well, in this context it means to to recognize God's goodness as demonstrated in the bestowal of divine benefits to his people. And so here Melchizedek is declaring that God alone holds the, the exalted place as the Lord of the universe. He is the one who, who delivers the armies of Ketaliomer into Abram's hand. He gets the glory. Melchizedek, like the Levitical priests in Exodus, who, who serve as, as a primary agent of blessing in Israel, here is serving as an agent of of Abram's blessing. Melchizedek is is merely the agent. It is God who bestows the blessing. The priest is only the intermediary. Yet Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. He gave him a tenth of the spoils. And Hebrews 7 explains that that Abram paid a tithe to him, which, which points to Melchizedek's superiority over Abram. Hebrews 7 7 reinforces this. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Melchizedek, who is superior to Abram, blesses him. Abram submitted to Melchizedek. And this blessing that, that comes from Melchizedek helps prepare Abram for the battle that's coming next. we see that, that, that Melchizedek is a foil. He's a, a stark contrast to the king of Sodom, who, who, who says in verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Again, remember the indictment of the, the men of Sodom in, in Genesis 13 13. Wicked great sinners against the Lord. R- remember what the king of Solomon's name or the king of uh, the, the king of Sodom's name means. He's a wicked man. And so his, his, his offer should be viewed with skepticism, extreme skepticism. We also need to remember what the Lord is about to do in Sodom. We want, we should want nothing to do with anything from Sodom. The king of Sodom here is, is following a customary practice. Abram, Abram does have a right to keep the booty, the booty for himself. In fact, I mean, he, he's the one who, he's the one who, who, won the victory, at least in a, in a human sense. He, he deserves the spoils. Well, last week I spoke about how there's, there's often a time of testing that, that comes on the heels of making a commitment to follow the Lord. There's often a, a time of testing that comes on the heels of victory. Maybe you've, you've experienced that in your life. You've, you've, you've just just witnessed to somebody and and. In God and faith, and 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 they've, they've maybe even they responded with with repentance, and and you're you're riding you're riding high with the, the privilege of being used by God, and then and then boom, you you get you get broadsided or blindsided by by a temptation or, or an attack that comes from the enemy. You're you're maybe you're you're reveling in the fact that, that you've just you've just by, by God's grace been been able to overcome something a, a serious temptation or pattern of sin in your life, and then then from, without even realizing it from behind, something comes in and knocks the feet out from under you. Can, you. can you empathize with that? Quite often on the heels of victory, there is a trial, there's a temptation. And so you need to, in your heart, prepare for that. This is certainly what happens here. Abram is, is now going to be tempted by the king of Sodom wicked king of Sodom is, is tempting Abram in, with wealth, with great wealth in exchange for the people. To make this deal would mean that Abram would have been entering into a, an alliance, into a covenant with this wicked king. Friends, the world wants us to compromise. The, the world wants us, to, wants us to, to take their goods. God says to us, Heaven is your inheritance. But the world says, here's this little pile of dirt. And really, in comparison, that's what it is. An, an eternal inheritance with, with Christ forever in, in heaven versus, versus something that's just going to fade away. Maybe in, in your life, it comes in the form of, of getting a job or, or even keeping a job that is going to mean sacrificing your, your morals, Maybe it would come through the the temptation of of the world's offer of of acceptance or applause. But but whatever it is, see the temptation for what it is. See the world's goods for what they are and reject them. I'm not saying here that God does not bless us with temporal blessings. Your home, your, your car, your next breath are blessings from God. But may we have the eyes of faith to see that God himself is the source of our blessings? May we have eyes to see that sometimes the things of this life can become a distraction to us. Abram's eyes here were were on the promise a, a seed in a land he, he had already stepped off the path before, but this time by God's grace he wasn't willing to swerve. Abram knew that that God's blessing was far superior to the bounty offered by the king of Sodom and so by God's grace Abram chose chose to wait for the blessing of God rather than accept anything from the king of Sodom yet again Abram has chosen God to be his reward yet again he has chosen God to be his rewarder so God has blessed Abram not in giving he's given him victory but not just over victory over enemy kings but over the temptation over the the temptation to be in debt to the king of Sodom. He saw with the eyes of faith, and and we also, by God's grace, need to see with the eyes of faith, or, or else we will easily confuse God's blessing with the world's benefits. God, through his servant Melchizedek, has enabled Abram to reject the temptation but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God, most high possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of any, or anything of yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Abram sees the temptation for what it is, and he makes an oath to the Lord. Notice here how he's he's using the covenant name for God, which you'll see as as a a large capital L with a a smaller capital O-R-D. That means Yahweh. It's the covenant name of the Lord. Notice how he also uses, refers to God, using the name that Melchizedek has just used, God Most High, Possessor of Heaven and Earth. And so we see how, how, how Melchizedek has been a means of grace in Abram's life, helping him and preparing him for the temptation. I wonder, have you ever had the the opportunity to to be blessed by a Melchizedek who has offered you who has offered you refreshment, who has offered you uh, kindly and timely words from the Lord, and, and that has prepared you for a a time of of trial or temptation? I, I wrote an, an email to to a, a friend of mine, to Steve Sconce, who many of you have met, for, for being for, and having that kind of role in my life. Who, who has done that for you? And who have you done that for? For somebody else? Have you, have you been a Melchizedek to somebody else, blessing them, offering them refreshment, offering them encouragement and counsel from God's word? Abram realizes that this temptation was also an attempt of this pagan pretender to take glory from God. If Abram had agreed to this deal, the king of Sodom would would be able to take credit for Abram's blessing. Again, he says, I will not even take a sandal strap from you because I don't want anyone to say that this pagan king made me rich. Only the Lord my God will have this honor for himself. And so Abram, armed with Melchizedek's reminder, knew that he did not need or want anything from the king of Sodom. And his behavior here is further evidence of his thoroughgoing repentance. He's paying homage to, to the godly king and rejecting the wicked king. Yet again, we're seeing, we're seeing the Abram uh, of chapter 14 contrasted with the Abram of chapter 12. Remember, there he took gifts from the, the pagan king Pharaoh, but not this time. Not this time. I think we need to ask ourselves here, is, do we ever act like the king of Sodom, trying to, to rob God of his glory? Telling stories that, that promote yourself or, or, or stories that, that, that put down other people. Stories in, in, in which you are the hero. Do you ever pridefully flaunt your spirituality, or, your Bible knowledge or your, or your prayers? Making, making yourself, try, trying to, to exalt yourself above the people around you. If you do that and when you do that, because we all do it, sometimes you're acting like the king of Sodom acting like the king of Sodom. It's a temptation that we all face, wanting the glory for ourselves. I wonder, where does the battle lie for you? Again, you're not going to be called to, to take up arms and, and, and march against a, a foreign king. But the battle that you are in is far more deadly Again, where does the battle lie for you? Maybe it's in it's in that kind of pride of of promoting yourself. Where where are you most tempted? Is Is it anger? Is it lust? Is it covetousness? Is it is it greed? Laziness? Gossip? What is it? Where is where does the battle rage the hottest in your life? Our battle is spiritual. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are at war. We We are in a spiritual war. And it's a deadly war. Alan Ross says that the church cannot defeat spiritual wickedness by overthrowing corrupt governance or legislating better laws and ordinances. The conflict is far greater than such efforts and calls for divine power for the victory. The the battle that you saw played out this past week in in the Senate Judiciary Committee was not ultimately a battle about who's going to sit on on the Supreme Court. And I'm not going to talk about, about which, which the, the, I'm not going to say that the Democrats are of the devil and the Republicans are of God. I'm not, I'm not talking about it in those terms. But this is a battle over light and darkness. This is a battle over righteousness and wickedness. It's a spiritual battle. And the implications of that spiritual battle are far greater than, than whoever sits on the Supreme Court of the United States. And the consequences of of the battle in your life are far greater even than who sits on the judiciary of the Supreme Court in the United States. Friends, we, we were all like Lot. All of us taken captive by a pagan ruler. But Christ has won the victory. Ephesians 6.8, when Christ ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. We have been set free from a bondage to sin and Satan and the world by the victory, victorious life and victorious death of Jesus Christ. And his resurrection is a declaration of victory over these powers. Your life, if you're here in Christ this morning, is a declaration of God's victory over those powers powers Christ's victory is spiritual and so are the gifts we are the captives that he has rescued God gives his chosen people victory over the world in accordance with his promises to bless and to curse he uses his servants who, who know his calling and by his grace in his strength engage the enemy courageously Trusting him for the victory. Spend a little time looking at Melchizedek. Who is the, the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? It is Jesus Christ. He is the one who is blessing us. He is the one who brings us refreshment. He is the one who gives us victory let's commit ourselves again to him in prayer. King Jesus, we bow our knees in humble worship of you. Lord, you are the eternal son of God. You are the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Lord you are the alpha and the omega you have no beginning and no end Yours is the name above all names at your name every knee must bow Lord Jesus we bow before you our king Lord I pray that for your glory and our eternal good that you would grant us victory over our enemy over Satan over the world, over our sinful flesh. Lord, we thank you that we serve you, the same God that Abram served. Lord, we are confident that that your promises to Abram were true and your promises to us are true. They're always yes and amen in Christ. And so, Lord, as your subjects, as your slaves, we, we come to you. And pray that you would strengthen us for the battle that rages. We ask this in your name. Amen.